0: I do, you know, I, I've been recommending this to and I do a lot of line practice now. So the last two hours I was doing line practice. If you can, if you can cultivate that posture without falling asleep, it is, it is really very skillful because you can be very, very still. It's just that the trouble is the mind. Uh, you know, we're used to sleeping in that posture, so I find it. I've really worked on that in the last five years, and I'm so, so grateful I've done that. Yeah, I think that'd be helpful for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I haven't been able to to do it. I do think it has a lot to do with exactly what you were talking about with not moving. Yeah, and you know, you set the intention, you get into a place, but I just every time it's like there's just this little movement of this, and as soon as you move, it's this feeling of like wanting a slightly more comfortable yeah feeling, and that takes you to sleep, and then and and you go for it, you move that little bit, and then. That's it. That, that's it, that's the insight, because now I, I can just get in there and my voice just stays like, just so still, just like, it's taken me a while to, to cultivate it. But There's no dullness? No, that's the surprising thing. Any questions of anyone or anything we could ponder?
1: Um, Beatrice. What is the difference between indifference
0: and equanimity? And second question Uh is it, I mean, is indifference unskillful? Yeah, I guess it's, I suppose it's how we use language. For me, indifference would lack heart, whereas equanimity would have heart. So equanimity for me sits. With the four Brahmaviharas, and the four Brahmaviharas are the heart's way of responding to the world of things. And so there's uh, goodwill, metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, joy, and peaceful coexistence with whatever. And supekha, equanimity. So, uh, to me, you wouldn't have pro- indifference. Would be uh, you broke your leg, I'm meditating, thank you very much, so you be well and happy, but I'm meditating kind of thing. Whereas, it will pay off as heart. Oh, so, you broke your leg, I'm going to get up from my meditation and help you. So it's it has that quality of connectedness, rather than... Um, for me, it's again how you use language, indifference has a quality of disregard, non-engagement. So, of those four, you just had upekan, you'd have the others, you wouldn't have the package that the Buddha recommends. How is that? Is that... What was, where was your like, question around? Why did that arise?
1: I was reading the, the book, um, Working with the Five entrances, uh-huh. entrances, Yeah. and it was referring to, at one point, he was indifferent and not equanimous, which didn't
0: help. He was indifferent and not yeah. equanimous, okay. Yeah. And, and what was the result for him? Why did why did it not work, did he say? Like, what was the consequence of indifference as opposed to the consequence of equanimity? Did he differentiate? Well,
1: well he would consider it as an hindrance for the meditation. Indifference, okay. Yeah.
0: But he doesn't go on to explain no. it. Okay. well for me indifference is I really don't care. Whereas equanimity is I know the way things are and I and I and I'm fully cognizant and present with it. It's not that I don't care about it. It is as it is. And then if I can respond, I do respond. Right. So like um like let's say if Chunda has a bad feet, then he has to sit on a chair. <clears throat> indifference would be, uh, too bad, tough, right? And whereas upekā would be, okay, is he alright? He's alright, okay. He's got his kama, I've got my kama, can I help him? No, not really, okay, he's got to work it through. But I'm with him. Whereas indifference would be, that's his kama, too bad, you know. It would be, it would have a kind of coldness to it, I guess. But this, so he was using this in, in reference to the five hindrances. Yeah. I'm not quite sure you know, where he's coming from, because you have to be interested, right, to understand yourself. You have to be somehow engaged with your own karma. But not so much so that you're that you don't accept it. So paikar is a kind of acceptance with heart. Uh, for me, indifference is a kind of resignation, maybe, it, it would lack any kind of vitality and joy. The qualities of heart are very, uh, for me, very important. Like in terms of, like, what would I like to develop? I like to use the breath. I like to use space and silence. But I, I like to use this the heart chakra a lot. So I. I try to stimulate that by actually engaging in um, associative thinking. So I think of Rompostomedo and I see his image and then as soon as I see his image I feel tremendous gratitude and then I take that gratitude and I I actually try to feel it here. So I make that quite vibrant and, and I keep repeating that exercise, kind of like you can, you can take Anapanasati and you can expand it to pranayama. You can do deep breathing and all kinds of things to become more aware of your lungs and so on. Same way with the heart, I can do th- we can do things which stimulate a sensitivity there, which is very, very helpful. So for me doing having done that a lot with like especially with my mom, you know, nine years of basically Brahma Vihara practice, that got very, very stimulated and strong. So one way for me to practice equanimity is to be here. So if I'm uh, typically if I'm at a committee, example I use a lot of at a committee meeting of this uh, monastery, I'm, I'm the chair and president, lifetime president, and I could fire anyone. <laughs> and I wrote the constitution. <laughs> anyway, so I'm <laughs> I'm the chair. So, and I like to be efficient and get things done and so on. So sometimes if someone's long-winded, and I'm never long-winded, um, <laughs> I get a sense of, enough already, I want to cut them off. And I know that's not coming from equanimity, it's coming from uh, my wanting to control the discussion in some way. So then what I, to come to equanimity, I don't go to thought and think, oh you shouldn't think that. I go to my heart. And if I go to my heart, then I'm more then I'm just let go into the present moment and I'm kind of available to the present moment, soft and, and attentive, and if I have to say something, I'll say something. But then comes from a heartfelt acceptance, which to me is what a community should be, a kind of heartfelt acceptance, and then I can act. If I was, you know, just thinking of the word, if I was indifferent, oh, then I'd probably just kind of look at, you know, I just doodle, and you know, I'd let the guy just go on and on and on and do to finish it. Okay. I wouldn't be engaged in any kind of way. Yeah. Whereas here I'm engaging, but I'm engaging from the heart, and then, then I know, okay, I'm accepting this situation, but then I'm still responsible. So I would say, okay, I think that's enough. We should, anyone else want to say something? So for me, a, a way of actually functioning uh, well with Upeka is to, to interpret life from the heart rather than just from the head. And the heart does interpret, right? you know. It has a kind of it has its own way of seeing. At least I find that. And I don't know if that's what it means, but the five hundred is Upeka.
1: You kind of answered part of my question, but I was going to ask about the time you spent with your mother. uh uh-huh. um, one of the questions you kind of answered was how, it, how you managed to practice and how your practice was affected, and also how you managed to maintain your vows as a monk in that environment.
0: Right, that was uh, interesting. Well, first of all, me and my mom were just great friends. So, and she, she had no kinds of uh, issues of dementia and so the connection was authentically real and beautiful and, uh, and so I always say, you know, this kind of situation can be very fraught if the, if the parent and child have a lot of issues that haven't been worked out or if the parent is, has dementia or something. So, I didn't have any of that, and I had taken my mom to New Zealand. They took her to Thailand. Took New Zealand twice. And even though I wasn't be, I wasn't able to really be with her that much in her life. We, we were quite close. So that bit was easy. So caring for her was never emotionally uh, stressful. It was always a function of Brahma viharas. So uh, I didn't really realize. I mean, one kind of codifies as a brahmaviharas, but you don't go there. And say, okay, okay, my mom, I'm going to do brahmaviharas. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, you do feet washing, and you, know, you, you do. But it, it is, in effect, a constant heart practice. So whether, like, if she had, if she was happy, I would be really feel the joy, and if she was uh, really um, down, I'd really feel the sorrow, and so you know, very open that way. So that was although it was, uh, in the end, I was very, very tired, what I did see was that you can do a lot, you can, you can, you can bear a lot when the heart has that, when it's abiding in that in that space of, of loving kindness. If my mom had dementia, or we just didn't get along with each other in some profoundly difficult way, then it would have been much, much harder to, to, to stay with it and would have probably needed more uh, relief, so that part was, was kind of very rewarding and then the vows, well I just figured out how I could be a monk in my mom's context and I figured it out and then I told all the senior monks what I'm going to do. So like, as you know, we can't uh, handle food and cook food. I was handling food and cooking food. So I kept I to kept my own discipline of not eating after midday but I wasn't going to call the neighbors to offer the breakfast, oatmeal. <laughs> so I just decided, okay, this is the way I'll do it. And then I, so I set up my own. Because uh, we don't have a vow system, you see. We have more a training system. So we don't take lifetime vows. We have a training system in which some of the rules, the um, going against them has serious consequences. But most of the rules are simply uh, acknowledgement. I went outside those boundaries, and so I, I, I figured out how I was going to do it. And then I told uh, Ajahn Passano, Ajahn Sumedha, and they said, "Go for it." So if there's any doubt in the sangha, what's this guy doing, living with his mom? So, because that's against the rules to live, because it's living alone with a woman. It's your mother. There's no, there's no escape clause to that. So I just, so I, I, kind of knew the rules which I was going against, and I just recognized that, Okay, I'm putting those rules aside. I'm going to do this, and I didn't really. I don't really care what people said, you know, it was strong enough, and it worked, you know, it worked really, really well. So I had my own internal discipline, I, you know, i have been practicing a long time, and I had my own Vinaya discipline there, but I, w- I was also honoring her culture, you know, because her culture was in the eight precepts. <laughs> and that, that, I've always felt that, that why as I, as a monk, if I go into a foreign situation, why do I always have to have everyone running around to my cultural norms? Isn't there isn't there a place sometimes where I can adapt to someone else's cultural norms? You know, isn't there some flexibility there? Well, some things no. Some things are just uh, you know, it's like if my mother like my mother loved a shot of port every evening. She said, oh, "Just one, just take one." I said, "Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that would good for you." <laughs> so it worked. It worked. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was really. It's one of the kind of. The two best things I've done in my life is become a monk to take care of my mom. So, and it had a profound effect on, me. and I think it had an interesting effect on the sangha, because monks couldn't just say, "Well, I'm a monk; I can't take care of my mother," <laughs> and they don't want to actually. They, they they don't want to. They want to care for her. But I I know some. I know one one monk's mom. She's an alcoholic, and you know this was, and some don't get along. I know one. One monk, his dad. Uh, have, his dad is really really heavy with him, so you know there are different different parameters that work well for me. And then I had I had um, I had the obs plugged in, and, and I was I was also I was also doing my Buddhist thing, and started the group, and Andrew started the group, so I was teaching a lot. That was very good. So still, you know, still a monk in, in society, that was very helpful. And then later on, less and less, I had this place, and that was like, that was a savior that, that that on those weekends, like sometimes I would just be so, just, I couldn't function, I couldn't think anymore, I just kind of walk in, have the meal and drag myself to a kutti, because I was just, I felt like I'd been... Punched in the head. Not that I've had any arguments, but I just—I guess—just like emotional exhaustion. And then I just kind of sleep and walk around on days, and then I kind of get back, and then I go. So I was doing that every weekend for what five years.
1: You taught a lot during that time. Just yeah, I did a lot of teaching
0: too. Yeah, I did a lot of teaching. So yeah, that, you know, that was that was uh, kind of that was good. Yeah, it was pretty busy actually. We did a retreat with Sumedho where we. That was fabulous. Did you go to that? Yeah. That was interesting. We had a. We were allowed to use uh, because I was teaching, uh, University of Ottawa a uh, extended education course in, in, in meditation. So the man that organized, it said, "Well, then you can, you can get some free facilities to get out and submit to do a retreat." And so mm-hmm. we had the, one of the biggest halls, mm-hmm. and uh, we had two hundred fifty people, on uh, weekend a weekend retreat. And 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 we charged, I think, just an administration fee, just a little bit, and that money we used, and we we were housed in the dormitories. That was our, so the the U of O became our monastery. It's
1: really really neat. Yeah. Can you say what is the difference between mindfulness and
0: awareness? I don't differentiate. I don't parse that one out. I know some teachers do, but. Um, all that language is, t- to me, pointing to one thing. It's that kind of awakening consciousness. If you, like, probably if you... Yeah, some other teachers who have a more refined, analytical sensitivity, they'll parse it out. But I, I've, I've read those accounts, and i think, like, Oh, yeah, that's right. And then I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's it's their insight, you know, rather than mind. For me, I'm always exploring just full conscious awareness in whatever language I can. So like today I was I was saying um to to, to just like like learning I to listen as a receptive quality I was saying that and so I use different language around it. But mindfulness, sati in the text has the has the sense of recollection in it, right? So Reco- and and it has the sense of, of um, recollecting something about the present moment so it has a sense of memory in it but not remembering some past thing but remembering some aspect of the present moment that we can know and that basically is things like annya you know the, the perception of change so sati so you have um, a you can have like mindfulness of death, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of change, and, and those themes are all bringing you to the present. Like like anicca sanya, the perception of change, brings you to the state of non-grasping. Like let's say if um, this bhikkhu came in late at the sitting at two, and my mind I've been so trained to be the boss that you know I don't I really don't care, but my mind's conditioned. condition late. Like, Right, the, the judge, and then mindfulness, anicca uh, sanya is like, oh, yeah, this has arisen, and this will change, and then change to to, to silence. So, when you when when awareness is simply um, kind of functional, getting along in life, it's not really what the Buddha's asking us to do. So, I can be aware of. Walking along the icy path to get from A to B, but that's simply functional. And the Buddha is of course asking us uh, a more uh, a deeper kind of question is can you can I be present to the way things are and not grasp the way things are so So let's say like the recollection of death or the recollection of the 32 parts, uh, all those are types of sati anapana sati. Mindfulness of in and out. So it's the application of the awake mind, either to certain themes or to certain perceptions and things like that.
1: <clears throat> so mindfulness always needs an object, then?
0: No, I wouldn't say it always needs one. It, but when it is mentioned in the texts, uh, it will be conjoined with with that. But like, let's say, the mind knowing the mind. What? Achantun says the mind knowing the mind. Sati's in there, right? But now it's no longer uh, objectified, it's observing mindfulness itself, the mind knowing the mind. And that takes you to emptiness. So there are there there's that sense of awareness having its own, standing on its own without the need of an object. And I think that's a very important um, reflection because. The sense is that I always have to have an object to, to focus on to and to hold on to and to develop. And, but the point of the object is to bring you back to the awareness rather than the object itself. In that sense that, that like, like Sonya actually doesn't take me to the object, it takes me to the awareness. Yeah? Whereas, whereas like, let's say a monk comes in, he's late. My my thoughts bring up you no know, clock, what's the problem? Something like that. And then a Nietzsche's you actually, oh, this will change, brings me back to awareness rather than to the object. That makes sense. Yeah, I
1: think so.
2: We talked about this in a meditation group yesterday, but Someone said, "Isn't awareness?" So if we're fighting a forest fire, or Mm -hmm. not a forest fire, a house fire, Mm -hmm. you're fully there, completely there. Yeah. Are you then fully in the moment, and it's different from being fully mindful? And I couldn't. I thought. I thought, no, it's not the same thing. But
1: I couldn't explain.
0: Well, you're fully in the moment, and you're fueled by fear. Right. You know. So. So yeah, you're in the moment, but there's a whole lot of stuff making you focused. Mm So our challenge is how you can you be focused when there isn't fire?
2: Can you be? Is there? What about awareness while you're fighting that fire?
0: Sure. But yeah. that's. W- but that, but it's it's kind of, it's it's um, biological, functioning, isn't it? Like you're now in survival mode and so on. So there's no problem there. You don't really have to think. Should I be mindful or not? Right. You just, act. You, just you just act, and, and, and that's actually quite easy. But what we're what we're doing is is like in the ordinary of life, we're trying to see discover the silence of the mind. And and you won't discover the silence of the mind when you're fighting the fire, and you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be sitting there. Oh, this is the sound of silence. No, it's actually the sound of the house burning down.
1: <laughs>
0: right. So so it, it's it's the wrong place to do what we're doing. Just like you know, like if. Uh, Christopher could be in his cutie and say, ah, cold, this feels cold, cold, shivering, shivering, shivering. And we find him dead the next morning. (laughs) It would be the misappropriation of what we're doing. So it can sound terribly passive, right? But within activity, but as you become more in touch with the inner workings of your mind, that mindfulness shows you, even in extremis, where you're losing it. You get better and better at not losing, not losing the plot,
1: mm-hmm. In more and more subtle situations. In more and more, yeah, yeah, in all kinds yeah. of situations. There's but, a good story of that, an example of that. Some, someone asked Adhan Shah about, you had friends who were rock climbers, and they were totally in the moment and aware, so why couldn't that be their meditation? And I think Adhan Shah said, you well, know, are they kind of contemplating anicca each other and in, another in while they're climates. In, in yeah. They can't, they're
0: just contemplating getting to the next step,
1: yeah.
0: That's the problem when 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 the object is so riveting, mm-hmm. it makes you focused, but it doesn't really show you the objectless. Right? It doesn't show you the transcendent because you need to be with the object to survive, right? Now, I'm sure maybe in some situations the rock climber then has some kind of epiphany and, you know, I, mean, I may have some kind of transcendent experience, but it's very much dependent on the rock climbing. Whereas what we're doing is we're, we're we're finding that transcendent silence of the mind in a very simple, objective situation. And the more we feel that silence, then as life gets more complicated, we can always, oh yeah, that's my refuge. We can always abide with that, as that. But in the beginning you need you need you need simplicity like a retreat or like a novice in a monastery. You need simplicity just to get a handle on what awareness is. But as you as you as you as you're able to go to no thought, feel the silence of the mind, listen to the sound of silence, that becomes more and more your it's like in the beginning you're 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 pulled out, and then as you, your your practice gets strong, it's like you've got this suspender which keeps pulling you back it's kind of reversed from the other way
2: what do you uh, recommend in terms of when you're like in some situations one might be one might go to awareness if there's some mental state that comes up some emotion that comes up and then you recognize that it's arisen and you kind of just allow it to arise and, and rest with awareness and not think about it, not uh, analyze it. Uh, but then, in some situations where perhaps it's more intense and there's not enough equanimity, um, would one then cultivate uh, certain mental states as like an antidote? Yeah. Develop method if it's fear or anger yeah. or.
0: Uh, I would like, say it depends on the. Um, the, the triggers that give the arising of the mental state. If something triggers the arising of the mental state, and I just I'm always victimized by it, then I've got to figure out a way to be more mindful when those triggers are, when those buttons are pressed. So let's say uh, I'm in the office and there's some uh, really uh, aggressive bully in the office. Yeah? And he's got my fear button. He just knows how to bully people, right? And maybe he's got more power than me or whatever. So I'm in the office and then as soon as, as, soon as he, I engage him, my, my mind just goes into fear or aggression or whatever. And I just can't get past it, right? I just can't get past it because it's so quick. Then I need to, okay, leave work. <laughs> if I can't leave work, how can I... How can I be with the arising of this very powerful state? Because that's where I'm getting lost, and then I might do a practice of like wishing him well. Uh, May you be well. May you be well. May you be well. Not that I like him, but somehow, so that when he comes and I get stimulated in that way, I can see the arising of that condition. Or if um, I, you know, I kind of am. I'm a shopaholic.
1: These are extremes.
0: And I'm always buying um, interesting teacups, mm. good karma teacups. And I've got a whole, I, know, I met a lady who has Starbucks cups all over her, Starbucks from all over the world, and so on. You know, I just, every time I see a cup, I have to buy it. Well, then I do some kind of death contemplation or bank account contemplation or, you know, something that when I reach with a greed, I can awaken to the greed. So it's that it's getting an inroad into the habit. You still gotta deal with the habit, but getting an inroad say, oh, that's the habit. And that's like an addiction. And some things are more subtle. But if I find, let's say, I'm I'm walking around in a monastery and I'm just really I'm just critical towards one person in the monastery all the time, then I know you're not aware of that. You're just always falling into that. And then I have to take that person up into my mind and say, yeah, but may they be free from suffering, and and have a different perception of them, right? So, so the critical faculty, you know, how aversion works. For for instance, and it might be infatuation either you know either way, but or fear. But aversion always works, and I have to always see, I have to bring up into the mind the fault of the person, right? You know, they're, they're, they're too much of this, they're too much of that, they're too much of that, so. So, once I get stuck in that vein, you know, my perception is totally distorted. So then I have to bring another perception in. Right? It might be about myself. You know, it might be like, ah, oh, fear dummy, you're just hopeless. You made one sitting, all retreat. I mean, that's pathetic. <laughs> so, you know, every time I just think, I didn't come to the sittings, I didn't come to the sittings, then I have to bring something else. Yeah, but I'm keeping precepts. So you can see how... Like balancing things are just to awaken you, not to get rid of them, because they'll still be there. You know, they still have a karmic formation. It's just to to awaken to them as objects and not be the subject. So, if, like like my struggles with fear, what I had to do was I had to learn how to have metta for fear, and I do all kinds of strategies for that. And it's metta for fear. Okay, how do I work that? Because it was it it will overwhelm me. And then when I understood that, oh, then I had the tools to see how it arose. But I still had to bear witness to that karma. I still had to be you know, quite patient to wear it out. So they're not, the balance, you know, that's what we always talk about, the kind of balancing practices. They're not to get rid of. That's where they, they go off. So I do, may you be well, may you be well, may you be well. With the idea that somehow I'm not going to feel those. It's more to bring other perceptions in. Um, I have a question um,
2: I find sometimes when my mind is more concentrated there won't necessarily be much thought happening um, but I, I do find that I can oh, I, I'll always be quite aware of tension in the body and then sometimes I'll be aware of just a kind of what type of state or what type of uh, identity of becoming I'm in at that time. So it could be like I feel, you know, maybe I feel more like when I was a little child or more insecure or more confident or there's more us just a sense of identity, I guess. Yeah. And certain character traits that go along with that without there really being much thought arising. Right. Um, how do you... How do you recommend working with
0: that? Well, the more conscious you can make that without thought, the more liberating it's going to be. Because that's what your self-to-self gets constructed upon. It's those primal, primary impulses, right? From childhood or whatever, from culture. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you can be aware of them as kind of primary things and not be with the thoughts very good. Because then you're aware of the, of the jitta. Or the that's the third foundation of mindfulness, jhita um awareness of the moods of the mind. So that that then 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 I would just say, just make it really conscious, kind okay, by labeling it or just oh yeah, this is what childhood, whatever, and 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 keep expanding awareness to let it be just what it is. Then it then it evaporates, and though the the conditioning around uh, the sense of I that. That grows from those has, has less and less power, and it's kind of purification that mm. comes through. So the fact that you can be aware of it before thought, brilliant. You know the the sutta to uh, Bahiya. Bahiya, you should train thus. In the scene, it's just the scene. In the herd, it's just the herd. In the sense, it's just the sense. In the cognized, it's just the cognized. And Bahiya, when you train thus, that's a training. And that's what you're doing. You're looking at at the mood of the mind just as the mood of the mind before it goes into thought. And the way you learn that is you use things like like my recommendation this morning is use discomfort. Use physical discomfort and see it as, as body as body. Right? And get that lesson of like direct contact with experience before it's uh, mediated by thought. Direct contact. And then do that with sound. Sound, sound. In the, in the herd there is just the herd. And then look at like a look at an object and the scene is just a scene. Just let it be or come to you just as it is, without saying it's a cushion, uh, there's a sitting cloth on it, without without calling it. Mm-hmm. And then apply that to emotions. That's harder to apply, right? But the same thing. Mm-hmm. You come to that direct and that's what I was kinda of pointing to, the ideas of no thought. You know, kind of coming coming to a direct contact with and then and then you have a kind of purity of awareness. Where the sense of self isn't proliferating around it. And and you find that usually takes you to that silence of the mind, actually. Does that make sense? Yeah? yeah. Okay. So it's that kind of direct, direct knowing. And those are good exercises, like, you know, they're kind of simple exercises, just like listening without comment. Like I feel your hands without comment. And then you take something negative, like discomfort. And it's got kind of, to, it's got a bit of "I want to move and get out of here" kind of feeling to it. But now you're just really with it, and then it, that will give you that will give you the, the intuitive insight of how to be very present to the way things are. And then you're almost um, without you willfully doing it. That way of being with neg- more more difficult negative things like extreme pain or or negative emotions. That way of being will be. Um, inculcated into your mind in a way which isn't just through thought it's like you've experienced this way of, of being with things and then it's really valuable because now you've got like I had, a, I had a bunch of memories came up with some really kind of bitter edge to them really kind of <clears throat> stuff coming up and, and it was just no problem it just, oh, it's just thoughts and you know it just kept the mind really broad went through me and it just felt really low love. But, but that's because, you know, I've trained to be with, like, the discomfort in my knee. Discomfort as discomfort. So if you take, if you, you know, if you look at it through the four truth truths, or dependent origination, you have contact, feeling, craving, becoming, right? So the feeling is the Vedana. So you have a negative bodily feeling. That creates the craving. That creates the thought. That creates the whole shlemazal. All right so you, you watch that, you watch well, what is the difference between physical discomfort and the mental proliferation around physical discomfort? Learn that lesson, and you know it's very easy because you're not hurting yourself, and then that lesson intuitively will come up around negative emotion it's It's more difficult, it's more complicated, it's more powerful, it's more quick, but the same intuition Oh, this is you know this, this is just not wanting a negative emotion or what whatever it is. So I always—that's what I always try to do. Try to get the simple lessons down first, and then they seem to then inform, because it's the same lesson, but it informs the more complicated parts of my conditioning. That's the theory, Christopher.
1: Um, sometimes there are conditions like tiredness where it's really difficult to be aware, stay with awareness. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm really tired, I get like really obsessive thinking. And then there's like maybe half a second aware and then um, gone yet. It's just so difficult to.
0: Is the tired, well, go to sleep.
1: But it's the thinking is uh, causing a lot of agitation and making it difficult to go to sleep.
0: So it's not really tiredness, it's like a hindrance of dullness, that kind of thing.
1: Like for example, trying to go to sleep at night, I think there is tiredness, but there's also agitation Agitation. and it's like the mind is kind of too tired or too yeah doesn't have enough effort there or energy to be aware or to fall asleep yeah may i
0: suggest the old man's recommendation lying meditation this is this is the one for that you stretch yourself out right in sarvasana make sure you get enough gas in the in the tank. Uh, get yourself comfortable, um, and and then adjust your posture another ten percent. sarvasana, That's what, what I use, and then make the determination not to move. And your first, your first sense of discomfort that comes up, and it'll come up pretty quick. That will then. Be that'll be the the sign that you usually follow, which will take you to thought and the movement of the body. Now you're using that very discomfort and you're trying to stay very still. Not it doesn't have to be forced, but you're just not going with the movement, and that deepens your awareness. And now, if you're very, very restless, it's hard to do because you're restless. you know, fidget, 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 fidget. But, but if you keep going back to that determination, then I found that the restlessness, you know, it settles down. And whether the mind, whether you whether you sleep or not, doesn't really matter anymore because you're very, very still and relaxed in the body. Uh, so, so then the whole idea that I have to fall asleep begins to be unimportant and, and, and the, the desire to annihilate because I think a lot of sleep is the annihilation of consciousness I and mean, what's nicer than just <laughs> put an end to the whole business I can't record it can <laughs> but so there's a kind of desire to, 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 you know, to put it all down and so on so now that all that kind of comes through through the body so now you, you, you're setting up a, a, a meditative posture, and the thing about it, it's not like if you if you're restless and you've been working all day and busy, it's really hard to get up and do this. You know, that's the idea, you get up and sit, but usually we don't. So, but but you can't you can't lay out. And If you fall asleep, great, no problem. But but the the the, the, the for me and uh, Chunda was agreeing with that that this it's the not it's the seeing that first impulse to move and not going there. And what you find, at least what I found, is that full impulse to move is to roll on your side. Because that's the posture of annihilation. Hmm. You know, that's back in the moon kind of. <laughs> so you resist that. And that's quite uncomfortable. Because that's, that's where your desire mind is going. It's going that way. And now you're watching. And if you can just hang in and learn that, then if, if you're restless, actually you can have a, like a, a really long meditation at night. And and still feel rested, still feel relaxed. So it's a it's a good one to explore. It's very it's very interesting. And then if you find like uh, during the day. You know you're kind of sleepy and so on. See is it is it dullness or maybe you really are tired, and and like go and but but lay down and do that rather than do this, and 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 see what happens. So. Uh, I would recommend like just getting out of the sitting posture, going to your cut and just try, you know, trying something out when you when you have that, that state of mind and exploring that way. I've been selling this the last two years now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good you tried it. It,
1: it.
0: it it takes some learning, but well wow, I've just found it like just now I had the two hour two hours of practice really, really, really still. It's not a posture. You'd think it's such a great posture, we would have developed it more.
1: So isn't it classic line posture on your side? It doesn't work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've tried it. You know, your arm fall. You're, you're cutting off your circulation. Yeah, classic schmasic. it doesn't work. <laughs> you're cutting off your circulation, and like, I don't know, the cheese not flowing at all, right? And, and your arm for like two, two hours of that? You'd know, have to be like this. <laughs> so I don't believe that, that that's actually... You know, that's what the texts say, he right, lays down on his right side and so on, but... I asked Mopo he says he does it on his right side, but... I, I, I found it not, you know, not useful. But surely there must be a way of, whether it's on the side or on the back, a way of developing that posture as meditation. Sitting be handy when you get older. Your knees are swollen like mine, is The
1: only time it's really worked for me is when I had been sitting a lot beforehand and uh-huh. retreat. Uh uh-huh. so you were sitting intensely for a week or so you have more concentration, more smart, yeah. down, more no problem. Yeah. But to do that without that I would just fall asleep very fast. Do you
0: do you notice how you fall asleep on your back or on your side? Okay. Because if you fall asleep on your back, what i found is that your snoring wakes you up. If you fall asleep, the snoring wakes you up, and actually your mind has dipped into the like, sleep state, but you're quite, you're quite conscious now. You're quite awake. It's an interesting one.
2: I, actually, I find experimenting with that myself that being on a fairly hard surface, so just having a thin
0: blanket on hard ground... That helps. That you're yeah. Not so comfortable, you're just kind of yeah. You just kind of. Yeah. yeah. It's worth. It's a worthy experiment. Yeah, yeah. And on this retreat, or just you know, through the three months, do do you know, do experiments, stuff like that, and see. Because certainly, just like in Thailand, you know, they say don't don't lay down after the meal. Do walking and sitting, and I would do that, but. I found that I'd try to sit after the meal, and I could just be doing this for three hours, really. And I'd really try, and then I'd, I'd say, well, wait, wait a minute, and I'd go and I'd have, I'd have a half-hour power nap, as it were, and I'd come out and I could sit all afternoon. So, the classic statement, was, you shouldn't, but I found actually sometimes the mind really needs that. But then sometimes I'd just, you know, go for four hours and, wait, 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 no there's this, this isn't where it's at, so i Pig out too sometimes, and I'd learn from that. But now it's it's a yeah, it's a good posture. I go here a lot. Like when I wake up in the morning, I try to really just see what's going on here, because I think that like the the quietness of the mind is also like an openness of heart. Just try to, try to really feel what's going on here. Awaken to that. That's Aaron. Good. Yeah. Um. I've heard
2: it said, and I've found from personal experiences that it, it's helpful to practice a bit of medita at the end of, of like an hour's sit. Um, and I know we often, you know, we'll chant the mantra under the uh, chants on the world. Um, is there any reason why uh, why it's not spent, why it's not uh, common practice to have like? A few minutes at the end of the evening or morning, sit to practice
0: metta. I think I think true mindfulness is is imbued with goodwill. So, like a any session of meditation should have a tremendous amount of goodwill in it already. Right. right. So that that bit of addition at the end seems to me like not enough. Because we are heart beings, and to really connect with life, it seems to me. That's as important as attentiveness. That's the receptive part. So what I try to do is I try to introduce that right away when I sit, first thing, not last thing, and get the mind um, open and receptive and from the heart. Get that going, and then the rest takes care of itself. Rather than rather than as an afterthought, to me that's more important. And, and then if I if I really want to strengthen that, I don't need to, I'm pretty aware here, then I'll do specific, ex- I usually do, like, gratitude is very good. It's like if you start your meditation with gratitude around the end, yeah. and you do, like, ten minutes of gratitude, your heart's really open. And then gratitude is a state of non-desire. You know, when you're grateful, you don't want anything. So that enters, that lets, allows your mind to enter into awareness uh, without desire. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful entry point.
2: Would you be up for uh, opening one of our afternoon sits so they talk about
0: it? Sure. Yeah, so we maybe do a guided meditation with the heart. Sure. Yeah, yeah I okay. could do that tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> my homework. Happily, yeah, yeah, I I usually do. I have I've been remiss. Yeah, for me it's uh, important that 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 part of my being which which perceives life from here rather than from here. Very, very important. Because that, the analytical parts kind of, you know, when I came, like most of us, usually overdeveloped, we were kind of great thinkers and analyzers.